a message from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information, please visit trinitygracesa.org. Well, I want to welcome you once again to Trinity Grace. We are so glad that you're here with us. My name is Michael. I'm the pastor here at Trinity Grace. That was Lee Wright. He is the RUF campus minister at UTSA, and he was leading us through some of our liturgy this morning. Uh, But we're glad that you're here, and if you have a copy of God's Word, you will want to turn it to 2 Timothy chapter 3. The passage is also printed for you in your worship folder. And kids, or kids at heart, I'd like to invite you to be listening for the following three things in the sermon this morning. First, to be listening for who told the first lie. Who told the first lie? Second, be listening for the two ways that God speaks to us. What are the two ways that God speaks to us? And Third, be listening for a reference to a compass, a compass. Well, we're continuing on in our five-week sermon series looking at the five different core values here at Trinity Grace, and while this sermon series is a bit more topical in nature, we will certainly try to stay grounded in Scripture as we progress through this series. Our five core values, as some of you know, are transcendence, truth, gospel, hospitality, and renewal. And these values work much like an operating system does on your computer, at least that's the hope. They run in the background and they provide a foundation or a matrix out of which we hope an identity forms in this new church. And last week we took a closer look at our first core value, transcendence. We said that we believe that our neighbors and our friends are haunted by the sacred that they have eternity set in their hearts and they long for connection with a transcendent God. The problem is they just look for Him in lots of different places where He can't be found. Normally in created things that can't really satisfy our soul's desire. So as a church, we long to be one that stands as a testimony that God is still there. That He's active in our lives and in this world. That He created us in His image to know and to love Him. We want to be a church that awakens that desire in folks and points them to the true source of that desire. So we want to be God-centered in our life together, in our worship, in our relationship, in our mission. And this morning, as we pivot to consider our second core value, we'll be asking, how can we know this transcendent God? How can we know this transcendent God? And we'll come to see that if we're going to know God in a personal, vibrant way, that he has to be the one that self-discloses to us. He has to reveal himself if we're going to know anything about him. And we believe that he has revealed himself. He's revealed himself in the scriptures of the Old and the New Testament, and also in the person and the work of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, who took on flesh so that we might know God better. Our second core value is truth. We desire to be a church that is focused on God's self-disclosure in the Scriptures and in the person of Jesus, which we believe to be ultimate truth. And to get our minds centered on this topic of truth, let's read from 2 Timothy chapter 3 and John chapter 1. You follow along as I read from 2 Timothy chapter 3 beginning in verse 14. As for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, 
for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man and woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now let's turn our attention to John chapter 1. John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Well, this is God's word, and he gives it to us because he loves us, and he wants us to know him. If you follow the news, you might be aware of the court case that concluded last week that involved a man named Alex Jones. Alex Jones is known as a provocateur and a conspiracy theorist who has a wide reach through his media platforms. And the trial was a defamation case against Alex Jones for continually promoting the lie that the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting, which happened in 2012, where 20 of the 26 victims were second graders, was a hoax. And the parents of the children were paid actors to propagate that hoax over the years. Well, through the course of the case, Alex Jones was exposed as a dishonest man. At times in pretty dramatic fashion as he got caught in lies, even in the middle of his testimony in the courtroom. The jury decided in favor of the parents of the Sandy Hook victims and awarded them just over $45 million in in damages. Well, during the trial, the, the parents of the Sandy Hook victims told stories of the emotional and relational distress that they experienced over the years due to the fact that this lie was propagated and believed by so many people. They told stories about harassment in their community and even against them due to the fact that people believed this man's lies. And it just goes to show in a fairly um, big way that lies destroy community. They disintegrate relationship. They keep us from living in the world honestly with ourselves and with others. And the truth is that we've always been prone to believe lies. Think back to the very beginning. When Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden in the first few chapters of the book of Genesis, they are experiencing deep community with one another, vibrant relationship with God, harmony with themselves emotionally and mentally, enjoying their work, enjoying God's good creation. That is, until they encounter Satan who came to them in the form of a serpent. And there's a reason Satan is called the father of lies in John chapter 8, verse 44. It's because he brought the curse of sin upon the entire world by telling lies to Adam and Eve back in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, he approaches Adam and Eve and he asks the question, did God really tell you not to eat of any tree in the garden? And you see it right off the bat. Satan is planting seeds of distrust of lies because God told Adam and Eve that they could enjoy the entire garden except for one tree. Well, Eve responds to the serpent and tells him that they can eat from any tree except from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
God told them that they, if they eat of that tree, they would die, which should be understood as spiritual death in the context. And then the serpent responds with more lies, saying, surely you won't die. Your eyes will just become open and you'll be like God. It was a lie that Adam and Eve both believed there back in Genesis that God was holding out on them, that he didn't intend to bless them. Satan came and he plunged the world into misery and sin through his lies. And we've been prone to believe lies about God and about this world and about ourselves ever since. Ever since our fall into sin, it has been hard to believe in absolute truth. We've been prone to believe that we know what's best, that we can order our lives according to our own truth, that truth is relative and subjective, your truth for you, my truth for me. And that's a reality for lots of people. And it's a result that can be traced all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, we believe. Ever since the fall, we've had strained relationship with truth. We might ask, what truth? And whose truth are we talking about? You and I, we tend to be driven more by our feelings about what feels right in the moment, about what brings us the most pleasure at the time, about how we can get ahead and look out for our own interests. Oftentimes, we just want something that feels good, and truth doesn't always meet that desire because truth doesn't always feel good. But we all intuitively know that we can't live in a world where there is no truth, where truth is relative, where there's no foundation, No floor holding you up. When we have to personally and subjectively decide what truth is, you know what it leads to? It leads to internal panic and anxiety and pressure. It erodes the potential for relationship and community between people. It keeps us from seeing our deep need for God and His salvation or His rescue in our lives. We're just floating along if we're not anchored to truth. And knowing that we can be allergic to the truth and that without truth we can't engage in community, we can't address deep needs in meaningful ways, we can't have relationship with the God who created us, knowing that we're not loving our neighbors or doing good to ourselves by living according to lies, by living according to what we might call anti-reality, what are we supposed to do? How do we remedy this situation? What's the solution for a group of people who are so often deceived by lies both actively and passively in life. Well, ever since sin entered the world, we've been lost and confused in a web of lies, you might say, and we really have no hope of the clarity of truth, the clarity that truth can bring to our lives in this world unless God makes the first move, unless the Creator comes down to self-disclose to His creatures. Look, in our sin, we'd continually be groping in the dark, dead, unable to see, But the good news for us is that God enters the darkness of our lives with the light of His truth so that we might know who we are, so that we might recognize our deep needs, so that we might embrace God's love and grace. God combats lies with the truth. But to know the truth, as we just said, God has to self-disclose to us. And we know how this works in relationships. Just think about it. We can't really know about another person unless they decide to let us know them, unless they self-disclose. And just think about how much more that would be the case between a holy God and a sinful people. If you were to come to our house, for instance, and rummage through our belongings, which would be a bit strange, you'd find a notebook back in our closet full of letters that I wrote to Rachel when we were dating in college. 
Now, I would turn beet red if you ever got a hold of those letters and read them for yourselves, but they were an effort on my part to self-disclose, to let Rachel know who I am and what I love and what matters most to me. Without me making that effort to self-disclose, she would maybe guess about who I really was, but she couldn't really know. And it's not unlike what we need from God if we're going to have any hope of knowing who he is. What is important to him? What does he love? What is the path that he wants his creatures to take? If we're going to know the truth, God has to reveal it to us, and it's a gift that he does just that. Now, you might be wondering, how does God self-disclose? Do you get smoke signals in the sky? Do we have to rely on our own intuitions and feelings about who we think God is and what he likes? Do we have to take other people's words for what God is like? Well, thankfully not. God self-discloses in two different ways primarily. He makes sure we have the truth on paper, and he makes sure that we have the truth in a person. Truth on paper, truth in a person. And then he invites us to reorder our lives around that truth. One way that God has taken the initiative to self-disclose is through his word. Truth on paper. The scriptures of the Old and New Testament. We believe that the Bible, the book that some of you have sitting open on your lap right now, is one of the greatest gifts that humanity could ever receive because we believe that in this book we have God's very mind revealed through black words on white paper. We believe that this book is God's self-disclosure to us. That this book is breathed out by God as he used different men to craft this book under the inspiration and guidance of the Holy Spirit. And because of that, we believe that this book is infallible. Meaning that what the scriptures say regarding matters of faith and Christian practice is wholly trustworthy. We also believe that this book is inerrant. That the Bible in its original manuscript and the original languages is without error or fault in all of its teachings. We also believe that this book is reliable. Because of what we've just mentioned, we believe that the Bible teaches what's true. And so we can lean our weight against it. We can rest on it. We can be confident of its content. We also believe that this book is authoritative. Scripture is the final authority to which the church appeals with regard to matters of faith in Christian practice. Councils, clergies, confessions, opinions of men and women are all secondary. We also believe that this book is sufficient, that the scriptures are sufficient in equipping us for a life of faith and obedience and service. And you know as well as I that the Bible doesn't speak to everything. For instance, we can't learn about the human genome or the rules of soccer or the climate of North America from the Bible, but the scriptures are alone sufficient to reveal who God is, who man is in relationship to him, and how that relationship can grow and deepen. And lastly, we believe that God's self-disclosure is clear, that the way of salvation is clear to anyone who would want to study the scriptures. As the Westminster Confession of Faith says, those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned but the unlearned in a due use of ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. All of these characteristics are why Paul could write the words that he does in 2 Timothy chapter 3. 
that the sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed, breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, you may be wondering at this point, what evidence is out there for the idea that the Scripture is God's Word, that it's His self-disclosure, divinely inspired, sufficient for life and faith? Well, we could spend a lot of time on that question, time that we don't necessarily have this morning, but I do love, once again, how the Westminster Confession of Faith addresses this concern by highlighting some of the remarkable attributes that we see in the Scripture. The Confession says this, We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture. And the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give God all the glory, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, and many other incomparable excellencies, the entire perfection thereof, are arguments whereby it does abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. Yet, notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divinely inspired authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. It's amazing if you think about it. Three continents, centuries, multiple authors, yet the scriptures tell one coherent large story. Um, But you're not going to believe it's God's word unless the spirit is at work in your heart. The remarkable characteristics of this book should be compelling, but at the end of the day, it's the Spirit bearing witness by and with the Word in our hearts that has the power to convince us that we're reading God's Word, that we have God's self-disclosure on our laps. But it's not only truth on paper that God gives us. He also gives us truth in a person. And in our second passage this morning from John chapter 1, we see that God self-discloses by giving us a person. In John 1, we see God described as the Word. John says that the Word was in the beginning, He was with God in the beginning, and that the Word was God Himself. And then in verse 14, we read that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In John chapter 1, we see God self-disclose in the most extraordinary way, by coming to us and making His home with us, so that we might know Him, so that we might know truth. And as we think of Jesus as the self-disclosure of God, it can bring us up a bit short if you think about it. Because when we think of God, sometimes you and I tend to think of a distant being who doesn't give us much of a thought. When we think of God, we tend to think of a being who kind of puts up with us most of the time. A being who might be disappointed in us more than he's happy with us. A being who wonders why we can't seem to get our act together. In fact, if God were to walk into the building this morning, that idea kind of scares us, and it probably should. But if Jesus were to walk through those doors this morning, and from what we know of Jesus and his love and compassion and forgiveness, the idea of meeting him right now would be a comforting thought for most of us. We're scared of meeting God. We're attracted to meeting Jesus. It's a strange tension. And John helps us with that tension by telling us that Jesus is God. Jesus is God who moves into the neighborhood, so to speak. If you see Jesus, you've seen God. If you know Jesus, you know God. 
As you get to know Jesus on the pages of the Gospels, you're getting to know God himself. One theologian once said, Jesus is everything God wanted to say in a person. The author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the exact representation of God. Jesus shows us that God is not distant. He's not disinterested. He's not angry with you. He's not apathetic toward you. He's not tired with your struggles. He longs for you to know him and walk with him in truth. And it's interesting that John selects the term word to describe Jesus. Because as we think of the written scriptures and as we consider Jesus, when we think about God's self-disclosure through these two avenues, an appropriate way to think about it is that God is speaking words to us. Literally, that's what he's doing. And if you step back and think about it, this is very gracious. Very gracious. Because we all live our lives with a number of different words or voices vying for our attention. And these words come from lots of different sources on any given week. Our friends, our parents, our colleagues, ourselves. And these voices are these words, they try to convince us of a number of different things. They try to tell us what's most important in life. They try to tell us who we are and who we should be. They try to tell us what we should be doing and what we should be spending our time and resources and energy on. They try to tell us where we're going. And we oftentimes listen very intently to these words. In fact, we buy into what these words are trying to convince us of more often than not. And we all have different words and authorities that we listen to that are trying to convince us how to obtain a whole, delightful, flourishing life. And by way of application this morning, it would be worthwhile to stop at this point and ask ourselves, which words or voices are you listening to in your life? Which word is loudest in your life? If we don't continually come back to the true word, if we're not coming back to the Bible and to Jesus over and over and over again, then we will succumb to the deluge of words we hear on a daily basis. We've got no chance. And we might begin living according to those deceitful voices and words, words that will eventually lead to our harm. We all listen to something, to some word, And the question for us is, what word or source are you listening to? What word has your ear? What word is shaping your life? At Trinity Grace, we believe that as we gather here on Sunday mornings corporately, what we're doing is recalibrating our hearts to the true word that can actually lead us into life and wholeness and delight. We bring our hearts and our souls into alignment with what is really true through the scriptures and relationship with Jesus. In a world often characterized by relativism, we seek to be a group of people who hold fast to the truth as it's found on paper and in person, in God's Word. Now, I know it may not always feel this way. Sometimes it's not very exciting to be here on Sunday morning. Sometimes the sermon falls flat. Go home, probably talk about it. I understand. It can even feel like a bit of a chore sometimes. But when we gather, we believe that God is slowly and consistently shaping and forming who we are, leading us into true life through his word, reminding us of his love and his care. I like how Tish Warren describes this faithful, unexciting work of God's word and putting ourselves underneath its authority in her book, Liturgy of the Ordinary. She says this, likening sitting under God's word to a meal. There are few very good meals I remember, and there are a few truly terrible meals I remember. 
But most of the meals I've eaten, thousands upon thousands, were utterly unremarkable. If you asked me what I ate for lunch three weeks ago on Monday, I could not tell you. And yet that average forgettable meal nourished me. Thousands of forgotten meals have brought me to today. They sustained my life. They were my daily bread. So if you don't hear a great sermon, don't let me go. This is what we're doing as we gather around God's word corporately and privately. Allowing God's word to dictate and to shape our life, to be nourished by him. Sunday after Sunday. Some meals we remember, some meals we forget, but all those meals have brought us to today. We recalibrate ourselves with the true word. It's what keeps us straight. We need the truth spoken about us and about this world, and we need someone from outside giving us that truth. The word of God on paper and in person acts in many ways like our true north. It's our compass. We are prone to get lost if left to ourselves. And when you are lost without a compass, you might be walking in circles for all you know are going in the complete opposite direction of where you should be going, heading towards home and safety. If you're lost, you need a compass. You need something outside yourself to objectively lead you home toward peace and safety. And in many ways, that's what God's Word does for us on paper and in person. And that's what's so amazing. If you step back and think about it, we were the ones who plunged ourselves into darkness and lies with our poor choices. We are the ones who have sinned in Adam and Eve. We're the ones who get ourselves lost. And God would have been well within his rights to leave us in the darkness that we had created. But he does not do that. Instead, he graciously comes to us. Truth pursues us. He comes to find us. And the way he relates to us is characterized by truth and love. He tells us what we really need. Tells us the truth about ourselves and our sin and our deep need, refusing to sugarcoat the predicament of sin. And then loving us so much, he is willing to pay the price for all the lies that we've ever engaged so that we might be set free to walk once again in truth and light. You can listen to Jesus, the word from God, because he's truth that came to love you to the very end. God's word is the one that we desperately need, and he invites us to turn up the volume on his voice, even this week. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for the way that you have not left us to ourselves. Thank you for the way that you have come to rescue us out of darkness and bring us into the light of your truth. We thank you for your word, which is a gift to us, both in paper and in person. And we pray that as we continue to seek to follow you corporately and individually, that you would constantly be reshaping and reforming us according to that word, that we might find guidance through that word, and that we might be led to life through that word. We thank you for truth, and we thank you um, that we can know it. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.